This is 16 to 1, a podcast about education, teaching, and learning. tired i stayed up to like five mm, well because i couldn't sleep because there's a global pandemic <laughs> and everything is stressful general doom yeah but i mean that's that's just like the new normal right there's nothing extraordinary about I... saying that we're tired of the pandemic anymore yeah i keep reading like as we're preparing to go back to school all of these parents on my facebook and they're like i wish it would just go away same I'm like well if that was an option i would wish a lot harder wish <laughs> she's mad from out there yeah the cat's not allowed she's to be your paw under the door you can't see it Aww. oh she's going like this you're not allowed in here you make a lot of noise and you jump on things i'll give you some nip when we're done anyways anyway yeah so okay well what have we what have we been up to what have we been mm, what have we done we're having a yard sale yeah we're combining houses so we <laughs> i'm selling a bunch of random stuff because we have two of a lot of things and then old mm-hmm. things that i've just moved from house to house to house that i've lived in i know i think about that a lot it's very depressing so i'm trying really hard to engage in the life-altering magic of tidying up or whatever it's called marie Gondo. i'm trying to only <laughs> isn't keep... that her yeah she's the like does it bring you joy lady yeah which <gasps> let's watch that no let's not oh I'm... let's do it no okay we're gonna that's on I my think list would, i think it will cause me a lot of stress to watch that i'm just really? saying yeah i'm not the I sort felt of person that way for a while and you said you wanted to watch it and i was like no well i, I probably wanted it... to watch it because i was in the middle of packing up like six boxes of stuff to take to goodwill so i yeah but, but you don't feel that way anymore. I, well, I've taken all of it to Goodwill now, and I still have a lot of stuff, but a lot of it's getting to the more necessary stuff now. So I feel it. I feel no more need to to get rid of things that mm-hmm. don't spark joy. I'm just going to move them back here and then move them to the next house and then put them in the basement and never think about them. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do. No. No. I I really am going to try really hard, too. It's just a stressful, like, moving is a stressful thing in the middle of all of this. Because everything's shut down. Nothing works the way it's supposed to. I like that you think it used to work properly. Well, good point. Great point. (laughs) What else is going on? Um, It's August. We're approaching the school year. Some schools have already started going back. And then immediately shutting down. And there's a lot of of coronavirus. Um, Yeah. So we'll get there. But so, yeah, maybe we should just cut this whole part since it's just not great. <laughs> Welcome to the Doomcast. I like, I like that we started this podcast in January and then literally all hell broke loose two months into it. And yeah. since then, we've just been like, well, things are still bad, folks. Thanks yep. for listening. Thanks for the update. See it's you still in two bad. weeks. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. We try to keep it a little bit positive sometimes, but the... The state of things is not overall great in the U.S. So, oh well, everything is awesome. <laughs> okay, 
Uh, I started singing that song last week. That's what's new with me. That is what is new with you. We you... haven't watched the Lego movie. Chelsea's never seen the Lego movie. No. But I started singing it ironically, and I just haven't stopped. Because why wasn't I singing it sooner? I've sung it about 37,000 times since last week. And usually only in really bad, bad circumstances. When things are not, in fact, awesome, folks. Okay, so this week, though. Yeah. What are we talking about this week? I chose a topic this week. Good job. Congratulations. And it's only important because we're going to be talking about project-based learning, Mm -hmm. which I call PBL, which is important to know what we're talking about. Project-based learning. We're probably going to say PBL because that's too many syllables. That's a lot. But if you haven't listened to episode 14, the Montessori Schools episode, shut us up right now. Turn us off. Go back to old us. Go back to episode 14 us. Listen to that first. Because the Montessori school, um, that sort of learning is huge in the sort of ideals and goals of project-based learning. So it would be a little bit helpful if you knew what a Montessori school was. Yeah. Because Maria Montessori is, is one of the educational figures that PBL has kind of shaped, you know, as far as like her and some others, um, they were big leaders in the educational development of this type of learning. And so... Yeah. So what is project-based learning? So project-based learning, I'm just going to do a little plug. This is one of my favorite things in the classroom. So it is, uh, this is the actual definition. Yeah. Oh, just one note real quick. It is kind of a buzz word, buzz term that is probably a catch-all for things that a lot of teachers were already doing, but now has this term associated with yeah. it just to keep in mind and i buzzwords get a bad rap in education because we just get so tired of all of these stupid acronyms for mm-hmm, everything mm-hmm. like there's just like pbl there we go um but this is one that i actually really like and i, I mean my dad always jokes that in his 30 years in education it was just the same stuff just a new name pbl is one of those too so by definition it is a teaching method in which students gain knowledge and skills by working for an extended period of time to investigate and respond to an authentic, engaging, and complex question, problem, or challenge. Put that in like layman's terms. What is that just, you know? Basically, a, a student would just work on a project over an extended period of time. And the teacher can decide what that is. It can be a week, a semester. I've seen some people be able to like kind of weave it through a whole year, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So it's it's very flexible. But it engages them into solving like real world problems or answering complex questions. And the most important part of it is that it demonstrates their knowledge and skills by creating an actual product or a presentation for someone to consume, whether that be their class, their teacher, their community, whatever it might be. So it's very open, I guess is what I would say, Mm because it can take shape in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. It can be as long as you can make it work like a unit for me, or it can be, you know, we often, uh, and kind of, we talked about this with Montessori, you were talking about some of the crossovers there, but it's very, this methodology tends to be very student-driven. It is. So there's a project or a sort of framework mm. for a project given, but there are not hyper-prescribed instructions for how to do things very often. It's like, this is kind of the end result you're going for, you know, get yourself there, figure it out. And it does tend to, and it goes across disciplines a lot of times oh it it absolutely does um so it's not just like it's not one thing i mean like english and history often end up crossing over pretty easily but Mm -hmm. i mean 
even, you know, there's no reason it can't go kind of all across the world of the liberal arts, for example. I mean, when I was student teaching, this is where I first, it wasn't actually something I was really taught in college, like in my undergrad education. But when I got into student teaching, uh, the school I was at had, um, they had just had someone come in during professional development and talk about it. And it just, I mean, they were all about it. And so every single class, you know, was all about PBL that year. Which was great for me because I got to see a ton of it. But I think now thinking back on like my high school, so that was in 2012. I graduated from high school in 2008. But I can remember things in middle school and high school that probably by definition would be considered project-based learning. But my teacher was never like time for, you know. Right. They're wouldn't not you like, agree? It's time for project-based learning. But didn't you have projects that were definitely. I absolutely still remember I mean, I would say probably most of what I do remember very distinctly from middle school and high school, especially, is it would have mm-hmm. been you these could types of things. Project-based learning, right? Yeah. Right. So it's it has this name, right? But it has been and has looked like a lot of things over time. So, and, and isn't that just wild? Like, if if the whole point of teaching people things is to help them remember it and then use that to engage in their lives, the proportion of non project-based learning kind of knowledge acquisition stuff to PBL, I think the ratio is probably off in public schools right it now. It is. Because the things I remember were sort of few and far between mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of learning is just memorizing stuff. And I would say, and- <laughs> I go back and forth on this just like briefly, but project-based learning is either easier to work into a classroom or 10 times harder. There's mm-hmm. no in between. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also part of it because for me in my class, it has been pretty easy to work in. Yeah. But I can't, I can't say that for every single Yeah. Obviously. I guess I would say I wouldn't, I wouldn't criticize teachers for not doing every single lesson. No, no, no. PBL no. type I don't. thing because I do think the best ones, or at least the ones that I can remember as the best ones, definitely involved a ton of work and preparation and yes. on, like grading just like all of those kinds of things oh in it the takes realm me PBL, three times as long right. to grade these it takes forever because it's it's like we were talking about there's no kind of there's not as much direction so mm-hmm. it's not somebody filling in bubbles on a scantron paper it's somebody's creative work that, that you have you to, have somehow, to yeah. evaluate somehow mm-hmm. still because you know we still have to give kids feedback on progress and accomplishment and achievement so there still has to be some sort of kind of tangible like review process at the end of it but you've got all these different kinds of projects um even for the same sort of pbl assignment that don't end up looking the same so it's just a ton more effort on the teacher's part so well and it, it takes work to grade them because you are looking for all kinds of things in every single submission Mm -hmm. and it's differentiated which is incredible for that reason but that also means that a rubric probably will not fit right every whatever submission let's say Mm -hmm. um but that also means it's a lot of i know this kid they would have taken it this, you know, like there's the the implication of like you have to know your students. Yeah, better you really do. Than you otherwise would. Yeah, and so it, I mean, I really get into it, especially in the second half of the year, and I think a lot of that is because when I've tried to do it in the first half of the year, it didn't feel as successful, um, and that probably is a fair mix of time and effort, but also me not feeling confident in the grading to say, you know, this is fair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the history of it, will you tell us? 
Oh, is it my turn for history? You love telling the history of everything. I highlighted it for you and everything. Chelsea's history corner. Here we go. Yeah, well, we're kind of preparing the show notes and we were talking about some of the kind of leading figures of this idea that has become called project-based learning. Um, And one of the big ones was actually John Dewey, which I studied a ton of John Dewey in grad school. So I went to Teachers College at Columbia University and he taught at Teachers College and apparently he was the most boring lecturer on the face of the earth. He he was there for 26 years. Yeah, well, he was just apparently all this stuff about project-based learning and all this stuff about learning by doing and like other things, but he he would teach his kids all this stuff supposedly, but he'd do it by lecturing and staring out a window to avoid making eye contact at people. He was a famously bad classroom teacher, which you got to take everything with a grain of salt. Uh, so, you know, not okay. Every but educational theorist <laughs> can perfectly put things into practice, but this is, wait one second. Have yes. everybody, if you're listening, Google John Dewey, mm-hmm. just look at his face. It all checks Problem out. Salt. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, his general pedagogical approach is kind of this learning by doing thing. He thinks, is that a play on his name? Doing, doing, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've heard of laboratory schools, but he was big into that kind of scene. But I, so he has this thing that's just sort of like teachers. And I, I do really strongly feel this is probably true about the best teachers, but teachers are not in schools. This is a quote from him to impose certain ideas or to form certain habits in a child, but they're there as a member of members of the community to select the influences which shall affect the child and to aim to assist him in properly responding to these. This kind of sounds like some of the Montessori stuff that we were talking about last yeah. night. Like a teacher is there not to pour ideas into your head, but to help direct your discovery about the world. I'm here stuff. for it. So he, and he also has the thing about like education is not preparation for life. It is life teaching and learning that is living so this idea that school is somehow not real life we need to break down that barrier because we treat it as this weird sanctuary where kids are coming to just kind of experience stuff in a bubble but it really is real life for students even though it is you know they're protected from some things in the world because they're developing but it is a kind of, it's also a way of being in the world. And I think we, he wanted to sort of break down some of the barriers that treats it as somehow less than real life just because it's school and educational context. There's some other scholars that have associated PBL with Jean Piaget. Hmm. Yeah. Is that was the one that was big in my undergrad. Yes. All Piaget all the time. I, I'm really surprised that we, I never really covered yeah you said that and i was like that's where my undergrad was but then i didn't really get as much dewey as you did yeah we well the dewey was huge because it was columbia but piaget not as big because it wasn't but i'm surprised because i did hear about piaget afterwards because he's swiss (laughs) because he's swiss i guess we don't like the swiss i don't know (laughs) so he's really big into kind of learning that doesn't focus on memorization so there's a like what we were talking about earlier there's a pretty important distinction it's kind of like what i was saying i don't remember the things i was supposed to just memorize well i remember the project yeah and the knowledge that came from them i was a really i still would be if i was still taking tests thank god i don't anymore but i was a horrible test taker 
I could, I was good at memorizing. Like I, you know, I could do that regurgitation required to like match whatever, but I wasn't learning to learn. I was learning to memorize it. And so that's what I like, especially now as a teacher on the other side of things, I'm almost thankful for my experience as a really horrible test taker because I'm able to really easily be like, oh, I would have done horrible on this. This would have mm-hmm. been so hard. And so that's why, that's why I use so much more PBL. And I tell my kids all the time, I'm like, I was horrible at tests. I had horrible test anxiety. I probably, had I had more PBL on some of these more challenging classes, I probably would have been able to get and earn a higher grade, but it just wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what's so important is that they're showing the learning in tons of ways. And it's not just, did your pencil write down all the things that you mm-hmm. memorized in mm-hmm. the right order? Whatever. Right. So there's a bunch of other theorists that kind of played into, again, what this becomes there. I mean, I'm not going to read all of them, but there are a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. We'll put them in the show notes. But like you mentioned, Marina Montessori is kind of a big figure in this type of approach. He's an educational scholar, Thomas Markham. He describes... PBL as it integrates knowing and doing. Students learn knowledge and elements of the core curriculum, but will also apply what they know to solve authentic problems and produce results that matter. And I highlighted authentic in this sentence because that's the that, important part. Yeah, that's to me what's <laughs> so important is that testing, rote memorization, none of that is authentic mm-hmm. because you're doing it for the sake of itself. Yeah. I mean, if you're a particularly enlightened and cheeky, precocious little student, you might be like, well, I'm doing this for the sake of my own learning and enlightenment. None of them say but, that. But they don't. And that's not how little brains work. And it's so much more exciting to work on an authentic problem and than it is to do, take a test. One of my favorite project-based learning things was in the English class in high school. We wrote, we read Judy Obscure took me a minute to remember that book title but uh thomas hardy novel we read judy obscure and then we were given an option to create a project based on judy obscure rather than like write an essay on or whatever i think we had to write some notes about it but we wrote up some stuff about it but we could create a project in another medium so some people chose visual arts some people i wrote a piece of music which was the first time and it it had to kind of connect to the themes you had to show you had to explain how it connected to the themes of Judy Obscure so you couldn't just do any old thing but you had to kind of internalize the themes of Judy Obscure think about them enough to turn them out into another piece of artwork that has never existed before so it's completely authentic and that was for me really the first time I had to actually go to the trouble of, because I'd always, you know, I'm pretty musical background, but I'd never gone to the trouble of trying to learn some of the basic rules of composition. I would sit at the piano and make some stuff up, but I never had to force myself how to learn to do, you know, notation and stuff like that and put things in the right keys in the right order and right time signatures and all this stuff, which has become very important for me later in life to how to know how to do all that stuff. But that was a project that was in an English class it forced me to do all of this stuff that was in another medium that I love. Mm-hmm. So it was authentic in the sense that I'm not just doing this for the sake of showing that I know how to do it. I'm doing it for myself, for my own learning, for synthesizing ideas. You know, it was collaborative because I had to work with my grandma's music. You know, she's a big music person and the music teacher at the high school, the orchestra teacher, uh, had to kind of work with all of them as a part of this. So it, these projects can reach far beyond the core subject matter that you're covering or whatever, hmm. but it presents all kinds of fun opportunities to, to 
to learn new things and do new things. So, mm. yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I've had a few projects like that, like with my kids, where they've gotten to do some, I've kind of like let go of, you know, some of those normal, cons- mm-hmm. you know, like the, the normal things that you put on kids to be like, oh, you're not going to be able to get that done on time, you know, those types of things. And just kind of was like, oh. Yeah, we had a long time to work on this, if I recall. Yeah, that's key. And Maybe that's one of the hardest two. things in a school year about PBL is that it usually to be done well. So one of the reasons that I chose project-based learning for this week is because as schools and districts and maybe you've already returned or you're planning on returning, I think that PBL could play a really important role in a school. And I think if teachers know sooner rather than later to start prepping for online work or hybrid or whatever it's going to look like, that that could help the success of the beginning of the school year. So like last spring when we moved online, it was hard to create meaningful assessments that were something that kids wouldn't easily cheat on, call each other, Google the answer for, you know, like if you're doing a Google form, like I could look at the submission on a Google form on a quiz and be like, oh, four of you turned it on the exact same minute. Wow. I wonder if you were on a face, you know, like that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that PBL could be something that teachers could start implementing for that type of work to try to help kind of cut down on that, but also make the work more meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's kind of driving me crazy that school districts are either delaying or just keeping their teachers in the dark about decisions about fall learning. It seems to make more sense to give teachers as much time as possible to prepare. And it seems like the best scenario for preparation would be to just start semesters online. Because then you wouldn't have the chaos of knowing whether or not you're going to be able to stay in school. Mm -hmm. So these, there's all this political fury, flurry and fury around these issues. But to me, it's disappointing because at the core, to me, it's one an issue that quality of the education that students are going to get, and teachers should be enabled and empowered to give kids the best education they can, despite whatever circumstances. So mm-hmm. it's just like having enough time to do some of this preparation, like what you're talking about, to me, is very important, but yeah. school districts are dallying and lollygagging. Well, it's not an easy decision, which is really important. There's not a right decision, but... Um Ohio's in a really weird spot, you know, on this whole coronavirus situation anyways. So the governor's, they he wants us back in, but most of, like, Columbus Public, Cincinnati Public, they've all announced they're going to be online. So anyways, so basically what I found was that in the spring, the data that I was getting was unreliable just because they would cheat or, you know, whatever it mm-hmm. looked like. From assessments. Yeah, right. so, and like quizzes, like I was teaching of mice and men, and I taught the crucible online. And so um, just because we were off for three weeks, and then towards the end of the three weeks, we were off for another three weeks, like we were just never off for the rest of the year to know, okay, I'll be back. So I wanted to include a couple of the, the really cool ideas some of my coworkers and I use to include PBL in our classrooms, because I think that it can look a lot of ways And I felt like when I was thinking about our Montessori episode, I really liked that episode, but I sometimes I wonder if we shouldn't include like what it can look like. You know what I mean? Like in the Montessori one, we were like, kids figure it out on their own, you know, whatever the case. So here are a few examples of teachers that I know or myself personally that do um, that would be, I think, by definition, considered PBL. So one of them is our government teacher. 
And um, they have their student write their own amendment when learning the 27 constitutional amendment. And so that shows learning in a ton of ways, obviously. Um, it has to be something unique. It has to be something that doesn't already exist. And they have to be able to understand the language and the nature of that type of document. And then it's turned in like an essay. And that's kind of a different way of approaching, I think, you that's know, cool. kind of the bounds of amendments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the other English teachers basically did an oral history and it essentially turned into like a podcast episode so the students would pick a different piece or facet of local history so like a local hero a local athlete a successful season you and i mean like a company in the area like that was a staple or something like that like the railroad like and then they were able to do interviews either like if you're distance learning obviously via email or teleconference and then they wrote about it and produced you know a recording of them telling this story however they see fit and then they were able to turn it in via Google email or putting on a flash drive, like for distance learning, obviously. Cool. Mm-hmm. I think we did something about either ancient history or philosophy that was producing a video like that, too. Yeah. We weren't going out and interviewing people. It was more doing research about the subject, and we kind of made them humorous because yeah. that was part of the fun of the thing. But sure. We, but we were also putting our learning to work. So mm-hmm. pretty distinctly remember that one. Well, and one of my favorite ones that I do personally is when we read The Crucible by Arthur Miller, I had the students create a very detailed conflict web, and then they could use any theme of their choice. It's any... a conflict web. So a conflict web um, for them looks like the center bubble might be like women in Salem or men in Salem or relationships or something like that. And then from there, it would be broken down to the main characters of The Crucible. And then from there, they would create a web that connected all of them through the conflict based on if it's religious, political, personal, Mm. you know, whatever that might be. And so it requires them to use textual support. They have to support it with a quote from the piece. It requires them to understand the characters well enough to say, this is why John Proctor and Abigail um, are mad at each other. Or this is why Elizabeth Proctor is mad at her husband. Or... This is why Giles Corey wouldn't give up his farm, you know, so it requires them to do a lot of that kind of work. But it shows me in a very literal way that they really understand the intricacies of this entire town and how they all turned on these people. Mm-hmm. And the kids really like doing it. They usually complete it on a poster board. And so it's a really neat way for them to show me that, you know, they really got it. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't have to be, you know, multiple choice questions or matching or filling the blank or true false. Like there's so many ways that kids can show that they've learned and for a piece like the crucible which is you know an allegory for the the red scare in the united states it's not really simple you know what i mean like we're talking about a lot of characters with a lot of beef with each other so for them to put them on paper and connect them and see all the interesting ways that they can find to work them you know together it's really neat for me and i love Mm -hmm. grading them Mm -hmm. so i think that's maybe the best one that i do in my class at least and those are just a few examples. Like, I know two of them are English, but the oral history one could obviously be a social studies class. Um, the writing their own amendments, you know, that could be taken in a lot of ways as well. And I was even thinking, like, kids could use scientists or mathematicians or things like that to create some sort of histories for as well. So it's not just, you know, it can be applied in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. So those are some of my favorites. So... If we're considering like hybrid and remote learning, so for me right now, my biggest problem is that I usually start the year off with uh, Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, which is a fan favorite, if you can imagine, in September. 
But I don't know what that would look like if I'm remote. And I'm having a really hard time imagining not being with my kids every day, trying to read Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And so that's been something that's been pretty heavy recently is like, what is this going to look like? And so I'm trying to come up with some sort of PDL that I could use rather than a Google form or something like that as a way. I haven't gotten it yet, but I'll get there. But those are the types of challenges I think a lot of teachers are probably facing right now, too. Mm-hmm. But for those that are doing all distance learning, this would allow students the freedom to choose what sort of medium they have access to in order to complete it. So if they do have a device with internet, they could complete it online. Um, and for those without a connection or a device, they could create something on a poster board or you know some other sort of medium that could then be submitted later to the teacher. So it takes offering them this sort of freedom and creativity mm-hmm. kind of takes away that issue of, which is one that we've heard a ton do our kids have internet? Do they have reliable internet? Right. Can they access it? Yeah. And then for hybrid learning, I think this would probably be best case scenario, obviously, but hybrid learning in some districts looks like they attend two days a week and are out three days a week, like doing distance learning. So that would be awesome um, to fill a week that way because you might see your kids two days a week or three days a week. But that would give them access to resources when you're in class with them and would kind of offer them some guidance for the time when they're not there. And then it would be a great way to check in, you know, those two days a week, like what you're learning, you know, where are you? Mm -hmm. How are things? Mm -hmm. So I think we could see it happening in some really clever ways. Like I said, it's a lot of work too to get it just right. I mean, teachers don't need to be doing more right now. Like, we already do enough, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's a good option, obviously. I wouldn't be doing this whole episode with you if not. But, I mean, my district hasn't announced yet what it's going to look like. Um, so, like I said, I'm trying to figure out what Caesar can look like. Mm-hmm. You have to come up with three different options. Yeah, and I'm just not sure. I mean, because I could be teaching teach. it in person and online at the same time. I could be teaching it hybrid. I mean, and this is the case for... Uh, millions of teachers literally but um you know those are just some of the the things that I've been trying to think about is like okay what does it look like because I do have kids who don't have internet access Mm -hmm. and so what could a PBL look like for them um that'd be different from someone with access and how can we you know I think it kind of it kind of levels the playing field because in the spring I think we saw a lot of the inequality of not having you know Mm -hmm. it all came up at once yeah very immediate problem became very apparent I don't know. I mean, it's not a perfect thing, obviously. And you still need assessments. Like, I'm not ignorant of the importance of data. Mm-hmm. But I do think that in a year like this, this might be the best time to, t- to even try to do some of the things you've thought about before. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, we don't know what it's going to look like, you know? Yep. So that's my little plug for PBL. And I mean, you've done it. Like, every single person has done it. It just probably wasn't called that. Right. Your so. teacher doesn't come up to you and tell you we're doing PBL. Yeah, I never tell my kids it's what we're doing, but they've done a ton of it. I mean, but like I said, I just just to reiterate the point, I, those are the things that I really remember. I mean, college to me felt like a whole big project of PBL because it was a lot of the assessments were oral assessments, so you'd go and you'd have a conversation about how well you understand what it is. So, and those conversations can be kind of free roaming, and there's no set right answers you're not being quizzed on factoids you know Mm -hmm. um so that kind of stuff but i just i I do think it can just have a much more lasting impact on a student's education than some some other approaches Mm -hmm. and i think that it like you're saying it provides opportunities to kind of level the playing field for students of different abilities and backgrounds and Mm -hmm. but again it is it's a ton ton of work for teachers and we should do our best to make sure teachers are enabled to 
you know, do what they want to be able to do with their students to foster these kinds of educational experiences. Yeah. Maybe we should stop defunding education. Hey, maybe we should stop defunding education. My turn. You beat me to it. It's really our tagline. I'm devastated. It's our official tagline. All right. You want to move on to a fill in the blank here? Last week's question. This American astronaut and physicist who at 32 was the youngest American ever to have traveled in space was the only person to serve on each of the two committees to investigate the Challenger and Columbia space shuttle disasters. She died on this day, July 23rd, 2012. And who was that astronaut physicist? Sally Ride. Sally Ride. Personal hero of mine. Yeah, mine too. Uh, another person you should go look at their picture of on Google uh, images because her hair was fantastic. She's a boss. Absolute boss lady. Brilliant. Just. I'm pretty sure my mom, I mean, she might have had even more a little bit poofier hair than my mom had at one point in her life, but it was very trendy, trendy thing in her life. It was but consistent anyway, with the times, for it's sure. It's not the only thing I care about with regard to Sally Ride. I'm, I'm kind of a bit of a space junkie myself, so big fan of Sally Ride. But, okay. Uh, anyway, yeah, this week. Jean Piaget, a Swiss psychologist known for his work on child development, had published multiple papers on blank by the age of 15. So what had Jean Jean, sorry, what had Piaget published multiple papers on by the time he was 15? This one is hilarious. You're never going to get it. <laughs> just just I, just write into us please and just guess. Even if you don't know, like just don't don't go look it up. We'll, we'll read the guesses if we get guesses from people. But don't Google it and send us our guess. And then you can Google it later because it's funny. Anyway, what did you learn this week? What did I learn this week? I passed two weeks. I created a virtual classroom on Google Slides. My school is a Google school. Using the Bitmoji shortcut on Chrome. <laughs> it's so much fun. I um in the height of quarantine had downloaded tiktok as a joke and now it's not a joke to me anymore but i saw on tiktok and a bunch of other places too that teachers were creating virtual classrooms and so i watched a few youtube videos on it and i think it's going to be a great thing to be using as we're maybe transitioning from online to in person to hybrid or whatever essentially i have a bitmoji of me which is like a little character fake you know, Katie. Cartoon Katie. Yeah. And so I have placed her in my fake classroom. And so like I put the dog Stella in there and I I put like links to my school Twitter and I put links to Julius Caesar, like a PDF and No Fear Shakespeare and like all types of things that would be helpful and useful for not just students, but parents as well to kind of get the year started. Cool. And so I think I'm going to... It's very cute. It is very cute. I think I'm going to use it. I haven't quite figured out how it will work in conjunction with Google Classroom, but I'm just trying to have a few things ready in case, you know, in two weeks when we're about to go back, they come and say, you know, we've got to be online or whatever that's Uh going to look like. Uh So I'm just kind of prepping, but it took me about an hour to make... I watched some YouTube videos. I mean, I put a lot more effort into it than I probably really needed to, but it was a lot of fun. And so if you haven't looked up a, you know, a virtual classroom and you are anticipating or will be using online learning, then I would really suggest it as a, a nice little, you know, home area for your families and stuff like that to use. Cool. I love it. I learned all about tools. I learned about the differences between table saws miter saws jigsaws circular saws which i already knew about i knew what a circular saw was and i guess a jigsaw i have that one too but i never i i i'm trying to get into some some crafty crafting and uh 
a friend of mine recommended that I go watch this guy named Steve Ramsey on YouTube because he's he does all these beginner woodworking videos and he'll tell you kind of the basic tools that you need to have in your shop to get started. He goes through all kind of basic construction of pretty straightforward pieces, but then also does more complicated ones. But yeah, I learned ab- about all kinds of different saws and now I want to buy them all. We're gonna, <laughs> I want to have a shop in the garage or the basement or somewhere so I can make everything instead of buying it from Ikea. That's my goal, really. Long-term goal. Don't buy any more flat pack furniture. Just build it yourself. Why are you looking at me like that? Good stuff. I'm just anticipating all of the projects. There are going to be some projects, and I'm going to learn. So I'm going to do project-based learning. Ha! I quit this podcast. I quit this podcast. Okay. Uh. Anyway, it was fun. It was. I stayed up watching YouTube videos of a guy building cabinets. It was good. It was soothing. It's a nice <laughs> pandemic viewing. It's like Bob Vila. Yeah, uh, yeah, kind of, kind of. It's sort of like uh, uh, Bob Ross, actually, but for wood instead of paint. Kind of nice. Bob Vila. Is that who? What, what, Bob Vila. You don't know who Bob Vila is? I guess maybe I don't remember. He who used Bob to have Vila a is. show. He was. He's a woodworker. He's a home guy. Oh, oh, okay. Oh my goodness! I cannot believe you do not know who Bob Vila is. I, I guess I failed. I mean, he did this old house. Like he was all. Oh, oh my yeah, the gosh. beard guy. I remember yeah. him. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you could have just been watching Tim the Tool Time ta- Tim the. Toolman Taylor? Was that his name? <laughs> yes. Do you remember him? From Tool Time. From Tool Time, yes. Which was actually from Home Improvement. Yeah, Home Improvement. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. a show within a show in Home Improvement. It's Tim Allen. Anyways, no, you're you're basically, honestly, you would probably find Bob Vila to be very calming because he basically has the same demeanor as Bob, Bob Ross. Ross, but just not the Afro. Okay. So, oh my gosh, I cannot believe you. Okay, so next week, two weeks from now... Chelsea's going to have learned everything about Bob Vila. Uh-huh. And I am, who knows what I'm going to find by then. Probably another super volcano at this rate, but. Yeah. Anyways. Sounds good. Well, good luck and we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye. Listeners, thanks for supporting 16 to 1. We're trying to grow our audience, so please check us out at 16to1.com, all spelled out, and tell your friends about the show. On our website, you can find links to follow us on social media, an archive of all our old episodes, and a contact form where you can get in touch. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next show. Cookie.